losing our first love. Revelation, the second chapter. Let me read to you the message that Jesus Christ gave to John the Beloved on the Isle of Patmos when he was in exile to the seven different churches in Asia Minor at that time. And uh, this particular one was to the church of Ephesus, which was the same church to which Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, a city in which Paul spent between three and three and a half years of his life where a great revival took place and they burned thousands of dollars worth of books on witchcraft and the occult. And the labor unions got very, very upset there, thinking that he was going to drive them out of business because so many people were coming to Christ. Now, it was a few years later after this that Jesus Christ, revealing himself to John the Beloved on the Isle of Patmos, sent this letter to the church of Ephesus. And I think it's interesting for us to realize that Jesus in love warned all these seven churches, but evidently the warning went unheeded after a short period of time because today none of those churches exist as far as we know of the seven churches of Asia Minor. But I want us to see here was a church that was vibrant, alive, the power of God was flowing through it, the gifts of the Spirit were flowing in that church, but Jesus Christ had to send them this letter of encouragement and of warning. And that we term it the backslidden church. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience, and for my name's sake hast labored, and hast not fainted. Now that's a pretty good recommendation for a church, isn't it? The thing that I thought of is, Lord, what would you say if you were to come today to Lake Mary and look in on this work? Could you say what you said about the church of Ephesus? That we faithfully have worked and labored and shown patience and can't bear them that are evil and have tried them which say they're apostles and are not, found them liars and has borne and has patience for a namesake and has labored and not fainted. Could you say that, Lord? Those are some wonderful things to be able to say about a church. Many of the other churches he really had to chase and come against them much stronger than this. But I want you to notice that next verse. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast what? Left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh, will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Earlier today we read the other portion of Scripture in back of our hymnals where it talked about you're the salt of the earth. And Jesus said that the salt, if it's lost its savor, is no value whatsoever but to be trodden under the feet of men. It's worse than even compost. It's worse than cow refuse. He says a, a Christian who's lost his saltiness is the most useless thing on the face of the earth. It's of no value whatsoever but to be trodden under the foot of men. And now he talks about this church. He said, you have lost your first love, and if you don't repent of it, I'm going to have to come back and I'm going to take your candlestick away. I'm going to have to take the light away from you that you have, and that light will become greater darkness. Because you're not fulfilling my purpose. Even though all these other good things about you are there, you've missed the first purpose that I have for you. 
And he says, you've left your first love. And when he said that, I, I thought, I wonder what God considers to be a first love. Now, I'm sure that if I ask teenagers, if they've ever gone through it, they'd be able to describe it to me very, very quickly. It's that itching around the heart you can't scratch, or you just can't even get hungry, and you can't sleep, and you can't eat, and you can't study. And you know, it's that giddy feeling inside. And I don't know what all words they'd describe. I'm so old, I've almost forgotten, you know, back there what I thought when I was a teenager. But there are some certain things that the Word of God tells me our first love should be. Let me just quickly run down a few things that I found in the Word of God that would indicate the evidence of a first love. First of all, in God's Word, I found out that God demands a total commitment when love is involved. Now, by the way, I want you to know that I believe that that's the same thing in other areas. When he tells husbands and wives to love one another, that is a total commitment. You know I believe that. But... Here he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. But the first thing, as far as a first love is concerned, that it has to be a total, complete love for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, If any man come to me and hates not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and his own life also, he can't be my disciple. That is a total commitment. That's the type of love that Jesus Christ demands of us. In another place, he says, any man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Tremendous demands that Jesus places on him. If any man comes to me and is not willing to take up his cross and follow me daily, he can't be my disciple. Tremendous demand. A total commitment. That's part of the first love. The second thing, it's an extreme love. It's a radical love. It's a dogmatic love. It's an anti-democratic love, if I can put it that way. When a person comes to Jesus Christ and makes a decision to follow God, God says, I want you to become a radical. Now, we don't see much of that today. Radicalism is always found to the left, way to the left. And God says, if you're in the right, you should be a radical. Listen to what he says in Psalm 97, 10. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. Extremes. If you really love me, then you'll hate that which is wrong. If you really love righteousness, then you'll despise that which is evil. 1 John 2.15, the last part of the verse says, If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Jesus says, this love that I'm talking about is a total radical commitment to righteousness. You can't love the world and love me. In another place, he says, No man can serve two masters, for either he'll hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. It is a radical love. And I think we're going to see that this is going to have to become more evident in the days ahead because of our school systems, the direction they're going. There's going to have to come a time when we make a stand and say, this is not just a preference with me, it's a conviction with me. And we're going to have to stand for righteousness or evil, one of the two. The third thing I found out about the first love that I sense is first love is that first love is definitely a very personal love. 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. It's an intimate, personal relationship between the two of you. You know, I've talked to people in the past who have said they're Christians, and they said, but I just don't have any communication. I just can't tell that anybody's there. I just, there's just no set. I, and I think, oh, that's, that, that's tragic. You need to develop that relationship and that fellowship. He says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They know me, who I am. And they're known of me. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. It's a personal thing, a personal love. Look what it says in John, the 14th chapter. 
John 14, just so you know that I didn't devise this. John 14, beginning with verse 15. Beginning with verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. Verse 21. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I'll love him and will manifest myself to him. Verse 23. And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. I was reading one of the commentaries the other day by a German author whose name is Lenski. And some words just jumped out at me as I was reading on this subject of obedience. It says, Love itself is misconceived when it is supposed that it can be great and strong without faithfulness to the word. Let me read that again. Love itself is misconceived when it is supposed that it can be great and strong without faithfulness to the word. We can say we love God all we want to. We can say, oh, he's my master, he's my Lord. But if we're not obedient to the word, then our love is misconceived. It isn't genuine love. He says, no plant is strong without good, rich soil. Love ought to keep growing the longer we know Christ and the more we make his word our own. It's an obedient love if it's a first love. Then it's an outgoing love. 1 John 4, 21. And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. The first love will be manifested in a brotherly love for other people. When we come to Christ, suddenly the love of God will flow through us. Have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm asking the Lord to love them through me. I have difficulty loving them. I'm asking the Lord to love them through me. When we're filled with the love of God and we love Him supremely with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, His love flows through us and we love the unlovely. Do you realize that if God didn't love the unlovely, we wouldn't be loved today? John 13, 35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. A person cannot be a Christ-filled, loving Christian and be self-centered. There has to be that outflowing of concern and compassion for those around about us. That's the nature of God's love within us. Then it's a stabilizing love. The first love is a stabilizing love. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, it's stabilizing. That Christ may dwell or be at home in your hearts by faith. That ye, being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height, and to know the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. He said, when you have the love of Christ dwelling in your heart by faith, that it begins to cause you to be rooted and grounded in the truth. Now that word is very interesting to me that it would use both terms and in the Greek it's very descriptive. Some years ago I used the illustration of the Empire State Building in New York City that when they went down into the rock to establish that building they didn't just set it down into the rock foundation but they also went out under the rock and when they poured the foundation for the Empire State Building they made it so it was not only grounded but it was rooted. It sent roots out into the rock so that when the winds would come and hit that building and cause that, that building to sway, it would not topple. 
And he says if we're filled with the love of Christ and we have a first love toward God, we're going to be rooted and grounded and stabilized so that every wind of doctrine that comes along won't bowl us over. It has a stabilizing effect. Now let's think for a few moments what the first love isn't, if you will, for a moment. Some people say, well, I know what the first love isn't. Let me say it this way. Do we lose our first love because of disobedience? I know of a lot of people that are obedient to the Lord as best they know how to be obedient, but still have lost their first love. So we can be obedient and still have our first love gone. Can your children obey you and still not have the love toward you they ought to have? Ever had your children say, okay, I'll do it? Sure, I'll do it. Yeah, okay. And they'll do it meticulously. Yeah, you, you said it, I'll do it. Okay. But they don't have the first love, do they? Revelation 2, 2, Jesus said, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them that are evil. They were doing works. They were being obedient, but they'd lost their first love. So just disobedience is not the loss of first love. Some people say, well, is it not reading the Word? No, not necessarily. I've known of people who've read a lot of the Word. The Pharisees even read the Old Testament meticulously, sat down and meticulously turned it around 180 degrees to make it mean the opposite of what Jesus said. But they read the Word continuously, but they certainly couldn't say they had the first love within them. Some people say, well, the loss of the first love must come when you quit praying and fasting and, and tithing and this sort of thing. Not necessarily. I know of some people that pray and fast and tithe who have still lost their first love. What was it the Pharisee said when Jesus gave the illustrations? There were two men that came into the temple, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed, God, he is praying, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men, uh, even as this, this publican. I fast twice in the week. I, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, the latter one went down to his house justified rather than the first. Now that first one prayed and fasted and tithed, but we certainly couldn't say that he still had his first love, could we? Do we lose our first love because of not witnessing? Now, let me, let me explain to you. I believe that all these things ought to be in the Christian life, but just not doing that is not necessarily the evidence of having lost our first love. How about witnessing? I know there are many people today that witness on a regular basis whom I sense have lost their first love. Every Saturday we're supposed to go out and go door to door. Every Saturday, we're supposed to go down to the shopping centers and hand out gospel tracts. Every other Saturday, we're supposed to go down to the prison and, and hand out tracts there. But they still don't have the first love. Jesus said to the church there in Ephesus, He said, I, I only have one thing against you, and that is you've lost your first love. I'm going to ask you this morning to think upon what I've just told you from Revelation chapter 2 what are indications of the first love in our life and what the loss of our first love isn't. And I want you to begin to say, Lord, have I lost my first love? Because tonight, I want to share with you what causes us to lose our first love. If it isn't disobedience, 
if it isn't stopping praying and fasting and all these other things, what causes us to lose our first love? And I want you to be asking the Spirit of God to, to lay upon your heart, Lord, have I lost my first love for Jesus Christ? If I have, Lord, show me where and how I did it because I want to be able to do what you told the church of Ephesus to do, and that is to repent. Get back to those first things, to that first love again. Have you lost your first love? You know, most of us can tell if we'll just be quiet and say, Lord, have I lost my first love? I want to read just verses 1 through 4 quickly as we continue in the series. As to having started it last Sunday morning, I want us to be able to hear and understand what God has to say about losing our first love. And so I left you last week saying, well then, Pastor Webb, what is the first love? How do we lose our first love? God spoke to me through this study for myself, and, and, and it spoke to my heart, and I'm still studying and asking God to deal with my heart in this matter. I believe with all my heart that the cause of losing our first love is when you and I lose our sense of needing God desperately every moment. Did you hear me? We lose our first love when we begin to lose our sense of a need of God's presence and help in our life every moment. When you and I came to Jesus Christ, if you will remember back the day that you invited Christ into your heart, there whelmed up within you a sense of great need. Oh, I'm lost, I'm blind, I'm without help, I'm without hope. If God doesn't help me, I'm totally lost, I'm sinful. I need His mercy, I need His grace. I've got all these problems, I want to bring them to Jesus. We had a deep sense of need when we came to God. How many of you remember that happening that day when you came to Christ? Remember those needs that you had, those burdens, those heartaches, and how your heart just whelmed up to have God come into your life and fill those needs and to meet you in a special way? And then, of course, when the Lord comes to us and washes away our sins and He begins to work in those areas of needs of our life and meets those needs and begins to remove the fears and the doubts and the anxieties that we had before as we begin to trust Him with all of our heart and He begins to allow confidence to come into our heart that, that God is able to meet these things and we see these things, the problems begin to subside, then comes the danger time. That's when all these things start to settle down. We start to get satisfied, begin to become self-sufficient. Our needs aren't what they were. And so there isn't that desperate longing and hungering and thirsting for the things of God and for God's presence and power in our life. It's just not there. We're not bad. We're not good. And that's how we lose our first love. God becomes to us, when we've lost our first love, God becomes to us an ever-present help in the time of need. It's the only way I can say it. Now, when we fall back into deep need, then we cry out for God again. God describes this to us in the third chapter of Revelation, verses 15 through 17. Revelation chapter 3, 15 through 17. Bill Gothard went into a group of young people one night and he asked them if they knew what God thought of them. And he said, do you want me to tell you what God thinks of you? And they said, yes. And he said, how many of you read your Bible so many minutes a day? How many of you pray so many a day? How many of you witness every day for Jesus Christ? How many of you are obedient to your parents? How many of you are submissive to your teachers? Right on down the line, raise your hand. None of them raised their hand. How many of you never read your Bible? How many of you never pray? How many of you never obey your parents? How many of you never show respect to your teachers? And on down the line, none of them raised their hand. He wrote the Revelation 3, 15 through 17. He said, you make God sick. And he walked out of the room. Why? 
I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth, because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. God says that's the element of losing our first love. When we no longer have that longing, burning desire for God to meet our daily needs. Let me give you a good example of that. You remember when Israel went into the land of Egypt because Joseph was there under the great Pharaoh? And God had already prophesied that the children of Jacob would go into a strange land and remain there for 400 years, and then they would come out under great stress. And God would perform miracles for them and bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And sure enough, when they went into Egypt, they had great prosperity in the land of Goshen until finally Joseph died, and the next Pharaoh that came along didn't remember anything about Joseph, and he began to notice that the children of Israel were prospering, and here they were just having a glorious time. Anything they wanted, the richest of soil, all the crops producing, they were multiplying and becoming a great nation, and they thought, glory to God, let's build three tabernacles and stay right here. Everything is perfect, wonderful, no problems, all the leeks, all the garlic, everything we need, we've got great crops and everything. And then the Pharaoh said, I am afraid that this nation is going to become stronger than us and take us over. We better take them as our slaves. And you know the story how they began to put the children of Israel under bondage. And they began to drive them. And then when they still continued to multiply, they said, let's make them work harder. And when they still continued to multiply, they said, let's start killing off their babies so they can't have any more. And in the midst of all that suffering and persecution, the word said they cried out to God. All of a sudden now, they needed God. Do you remember some years ago I spoke on the subject about the eagle? As the eagle fluttereth over its wings, so the Lord. He was stirring up the nest. He was kicking out all the felt and all the cotton and all the, the uh, rabbit skins and everything in the, in the nest to where all they felt were the thorns and the thistles because God was getting them ready to move. And he began to cry out unto God. And then God spoke to a man by the name of Moses and said, Go down and set my people free. And Moses went down and God began to perform miracles by plagues on the nation of Egypt to get the attention of Pharaoh and to prove himself strong in the eyes of the children of Israel. But as long as they were in the land of Goshen and everything was just going fine, they didn't need God, they didn't worry, they didn't call out and say, God, didn't you promise us you're going to send us to another land flowing in milk and honey? Now they didn't need God then, but then when all this persecution came upon them, and Pharaoh says, now, I want you to make just as many bricks, but you've got to go get your own straw. They said, that's impossible. He said, you either do it or else. And in the midst of all this persecution and being driven, they began to cry out to God. Let me ask you something. When do you and I cry out to God more, during the calm or during the storm? Think about it. Is it because... We call upon God because we need Him or is it because we call upon God because we want Him? Now, I have to be honest. I think of many times I call upon God because I need Him more than I want Him and I, I have had to ask Him to forgive me for that. It's when the pressure times come that I really get down to business and get serious with God. How about you? So the Lord raised up Moses and brought him in and finally Pharaoh, after the death of all the firstborn sons of the land of Egypt, God said, I've given you favor in their sight. And you go to them, they will give you many riches. And they weren't stealing. They were actually receiving their salary for all those years of bondage and slavery they had served the Egyptians. And God had them give them gold and silver and precious gems. And they went out heavily laden. 
But I want you to notice something. Now they had lived in the land of Goshen with no needs for years. Then God had to put them under persecution to get them to listen to him in order to bring them out. And when he brought them out, here they were, men who had done nothing but slavery, the, the work of making bricks and, and planting gardens and so forth, and they had no weapons, they had no order, no organization, and as they were going out, being led by Moses, they come to the Red Sea. Now, they didn't know how to build pontoon bridges, they didn't know how to build boats, they didn't know what to do, and they were totally dependent upon God. Now, right then, they didn't know exactly what to do, and so Moses had to say, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Now, I've been in the pastorate long enough, many, many times I've seen, as it were, the sheep standing at the edge of the water, beginning to moan and groan, saying, oh, I, would, I, I, I didn't have these problems before I became a Christian, and now look, at they just all fall all over me. What am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And I've seen Christian after Christian do this. And then I've seen God perform a miracle. And I see what God's doing. He's trying to get these people to say, hey... I'm trying to get your attention. I'm bringing these needs. I'm bringing these problems. I'm bringing these burdens in your life to teach you to quietly trust in me. And you know that God parted the Red Sea. And that was, though that weren't enough. Even when they got across the Red Sea, they looked back with fear because here came the Egyptians through the same road that God had prepared for them. But God wanted them to understand that he was still in control. And when the sea came back together, you remember that Miriam began to dance and sing to the Lord. The horse and rider thrown into the sea. I will sing unto the Lord for he hath triumphed gloriously. Hallelujah. They had a, a glorious revival over on the other side of the Red Sea. Now all of a sudden they became aware of, wow, did you see what God did in my life? I'll never forget this as long as I live. And they started marching through the wilderness gloriously going to the land of promise. And God says, well, I'm still not through teaching them this situation yet. They still don't depend totally on me. Now they're saying, give us that land and we'll really go to town. And so the next thing they ran into is a need of water. And you remember how they began to murmur at the waters of Marah? And God finally told Moses, they'll have water. Do thus and such. Throw the branch into the water and it'll sweeten the water. The water was bitter. And when he did so, the children of Israel had water in the wilderness. Then when they got out into the desert, there was no food and, of course, they, they started murmuring to Moses. They kept looking to Moses, saying, If you're God's man, where's the food? You're supposed to provide the food. What's the matter with you? Why didn't you let us stay back there in Egypt where at least we had our leeks and our garlic and we had all those wonderful things? Instead of, a, again, looking up and saying, God, I thank you that you are our source. And God's saying, I'm trying to get your attention. Will you listen to me? Learn to depend on me. Learn to trust me. Look at me. Don't yell at me. Call on me. I love you and I'm your source. And the Word of God says that he started providing manna for them. Now, that wasn't what they wanted. They went out wanting to know where the cucumbers and the leeks were, the, the onions and things were. But they went out and they found this little thing. It tasted almost like a little honey wafer. And by the way, God also provided it for them just six days a week. Six days a week. So they'd have to see, I'm your source and be obedient to me and it'll always be there. He said, now don't go out any other day and collect two days amount at a time. But what did some of them do? Well... I just want to make sure I've got enough for tomorrow. So they gathered two days and they'd bring it in, put it in their tent. And all of a sudden the guys standing around outside the tent said, what's that horrible smell? They said, what smell? I don't smell anything. Oh, there's a horrible smell. Oh, I know what you did. You went out and you got two days worth yesterday, didn't you? And it rotted in your tent. Why can't you obey God and do what he tells you to do? Well, I was just concerned if it started storming tomorrow, I might not have enough. Now, God was teaching them sufficient under the day is the evil thereof. Don't worry about tomorrow or the next day or next week. Is God meeting my need today? Is God providing for me? 
If they went out, of course, on the sixth day and collected two days food, manna, it did not rot because they were doing it in obedience to the Lord. Now, they wanted cucumbers and they wanted onions and they wanted the food that they had back in Egypt, but God said, no, I'm putting you on a new diet. But God, you're not meeting my needs because my needs are these. And God says, no, those aren't really your needs. I have for you a better appetite. I have for you a better thing. Forget what you have had and begin to trust me moment by moment, day by day. I say that because many, many times we'll tend to think that God has not met our needs and God says, your needs aren't really what you think they are. When they brought that man to them that was on a pallet to Jesus and lowered him down through the roof onto the floor, everybody could say, Jesus, minister to that man's body. He has a tremendous physical need. Minister to it. And what did Jesus do? He looked down and said, Be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And some of them stood in the back and said, Well, glory to God. His sins are forgiven. Huh? But look at his need. He has a real need. Why don't you take care of the physical need? Jesus said, No, I'm taking care of the greatest need. And the greatest need you and I have is not physical and material. It's spiritual. And until we can come to the place that we are healed spiritually, nothing else will ever function properly for us. We may think that God is supposed to heal all of our physical needs and all of our material needs, but God said, I'm going to deal with that spiritual need because if I don't deal with it first, the other things will never take care of themselves. When I become your source spiritually, then I'll become your source physically and financially in every other way. But if I start supplying all these other needs and spiritually you're dead and you're cold and you're indifferent and you're rebellious and you're stubborn and you're stiff-necked, then it isn't going to do me any good to provide the rest of it because the further you go, the more independent you're going to become. See, that's the way God reasons. I'm going to get, I, I want to get to the spiritual aspect of it first. I want you to begin to recognize your total dependency upon me and be thankful in the midst of it. It wasn't long before the children of Israel got into battle. And every time God said, I don't want you to start thinking you can fight the battle for yourselves. So many times I say, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it myself this time. Glory to God. I'm not going to depend on anyone else. It's mine. I'm going to make it myself. I'm going to grab my bootstraps and pull them up. I'm going to do it. God says, oh, haven't you learned yet? Back there you said you died. And you said my life was going to live inside of you. And it's only the carnal man that tries to make it happen. It's the spiritual man who lets it happen by yielding to the lordship of Jesus Christ and saying, not my will, but thine be done, Lord. I'm going to walk in obedience to the last nth degree, and I'm going to trust you. And in these battles, God said, now you go and do thus and such, and I'll give you the victory. I'll give you the victory all the way through if you'll just do it my way. Somebody steps up and says, now, you don't understand, God. I have a degree in, in military advantages and I've been to the university and I know exactly how to set out my men and set out the swordsmen and the, arrow, the men with the bows and arrows and so forth. If you'll do it my way, I'll assure you, we'll really get a victory. God says, no, I don't want your reasoning. My thoughts are above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. Do what I tell you to do. Just go out and start singing praises. Sing praises. Well, sure, Lord, sing praises and they'll know exactly where we are and we'll all get killed. No, just sing praises and let me take care of it. I'll do the rest. Then when I tell you to do something, then do it. And if you'll do it like I tell you to do it, you will have the victory. Then in times of disobedience, when they were beginning to become rebellious, God sent amongst them fiery serpents, you'll remember. And the only way that they could have healing from those fiery serpents was to look out, and Moses had raised the brazen serpent. And he said, when you look to the brazen serpent, you'll live. 
that took an act of faith. They said, don't you have any doctors around here? Back in Egypt, we had, at least we had doctors. They'd come and drain the blood out of our leg or do something, amputate our leg or something. But he said, no, just look and live. And again, it was something that was irrational, something that was radical. But if they were obedient, God healed them. And what was God doing? God was saying, look up here. Look at me. Watch me. Forget the rest of these other things and recognize I am your source. And every time we fail to see this aspect of our life, we begin to lose our first love because we can do it ourselves. Another wonderful thing while they're out there in the wilderness traveling around is for 40 years and 40 nights they never wore out their shoes and their garments never became tattered. They lasted for 40 years while they were out there in the wilderness. Now they had no houses, they had no land, they had no crops. Every day they were totally dependent upon the Lord. Now, let me say it again. I really feel sorry for some people who have never had to trust God for their daily needs. It can be a tremendous blessing to get up in the morning and say, Lord, I don't know where my food is coming from. I don't know where my gas is coming from. I don't know how the bills are going to be paid. But I thank you and I praise you that you have promised to meet all my needs according to your riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know what my needs are. I may think I do, but you know what they are, and I thank you that they're already met, and I'm going to walk in it. See, Brother Webb, that's kind of radical. That's what I told you the first love has involved. Now let me show you what God said when they finally came to the end of that 40-year journey in the book of Deuteronomy in the 8th chapter, and they were getting ready to go into the promised land. The very warning that God gave to the children of Israel. After having led them, having fed them, having fought for them, having watered them, having strengthened them, having taken care of all their clothes and everything, for 40 years, now look what he said to them. Deuteronomy, the 8th chapter, verses 1 through 14. 